0: This is your coffee break. Hey, friends, I'm back again this week. I have with me two-time author, first-time novelist, John Negroni. And I really hope I'm saying your name right. That's usually one of the things I like to check before we start. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sarah. You said it perfectly.
1: Oh, per- good, uh, Thank good. you so much. I, I love this show, and I'm so happy uh, to be here with
0: you. Good. Well, I'm, I'm happy to feature you. I would love to hear a little bit. You got in touch with me. Um, you published your first novel in July. So just, well, today's August 1st. So just last yeah. month. <laughs> Um So very, very recently, this is your second book, your first novel. I want to know all about how you got to this point.
1: Yeah, I, my, my journey is a long one and a very weird and confusing one. Excellent. <laughs> um, uh, my, my writing group calls me, like their favorite adjective for me is unconventional. Good. Uh, so, and I like to do things in a weird direction. But yeah, so I started my, I guess my author journey a, a few years ago. Uh, so two years ago, I published my first book. And it's, it was called The Pixar Theory which came out uh, through just like a small press out in San Francisco. They specialize in shorter books. And the Pixar theory was based on a blog post that I wrote two years before that. For some reason, July is like my month when I come (laughs) out with big things. So July of 2013, I came out with this, this blog post about how all of the Pixar movies are connected and share a universe. And it was kind of just a fun, goofy thing I did on my own that sort of blew up and went, all over the internet, and and it just kind of created a following and a fan base, and so I eventually turned it into a book for people, and I finished that up in July of 2015, and I had always wanted to uh, write novels and to write books. I I love stories. I, I'm uh, right now. I'm uh, for the last few years I've been a film critic, a TV critic. I, I watch a lot of movies and shows, and. I, I just love kind of breaking stories open and finding their little quirks and patterns and formulas and cr- I, I like to understand what makes people uh, love a, a story over another one. So that's, that's fascinated me in the last few years uh, and it's what prompted me to put work into my own story. You know, instead mm-hmm. of criticizing everybody else's work, <laughs> I decided to put myself out there. That's what led me to, I started this book last year. Uh, spring, I think it was around March 2016. I sat down and I began the draft that I wouldn't rewrite for the 12th time, and I uh, just sort of went on from there. and And Killer Joy was published by Fifty Fifty Press in I want to say on February March of this year, and now it's and now it's out there, and I'm terrified.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I appreciate you saying that because I, I feel like a lot of writers probably feel that way upon publication. You're putting yourself out there. You're saying, hey, I created this. And as a critic, as someone who knows um, how tough the receptive world can be, I'm sure that you have a special appreciation for that. It's
1: perfectly natural.
0: Yes. I've heard Killer Joy uh, referred to as sort of a mix between Lord of the Rings and Watchmen. Can you give us the pitch?
1: Yes. And I, I just want to do the the story behind that because I owe Ooh. it to uh, one of the first... Uh, publishers that I talked to, uh, we almost reached a deal, but uh, she she read the whole the whole book and she was like, yeah, it's Lord of the Rings meets Watchmen. So I kind of hung on to that, and uh, my the publisher I eventually signed with uh, was the one that decided, yeah, that's great, that that really sums this up. So uh, the pitch really is what that sounds like. Uh, it's it's an adult fantasy book, and it's got epic heroes and dangerous monsters, a lot of things that you would like if you're an avid fantasy reader of something like Lord of the Rings or A Song of Ice and Fire, things like that. But it also has this kind of a comic book, you know, superhero element to it because I was sitting down when I was trying to think of, like, what is the setting for my story? I've got the characters kind of figured out, but what kind of world do they occupy? I didn't want it to just be straightforward fantasy because that's been done so many times and it's been done so well. So I wanted to add my own flavor and I thought to myself, well, what, what what would the world of Lord of the Rings or Skyrim or Game of Thrones or these things, what would it really be like if that civilization was allowed to progress a little bit, maybe, you know, like let's put them through their own industrial age. And, <laughs> like what what would that kind of world look like? And I really examined, you know, okay, philosophically, how would these people view life? How would they, create a civilization. And uh, I went down this rabbit hole and it led me to, oh, okay, so the wizards and, and mages and sorcerers and all that big spectacle stuff, they would turn into kind of the superheroes of comic books that we love today. So I wanted to put all that together and try to tell a unique story using familiar elements from two wildly different genres. And I hope that it worked out.
0: That sounds awesome. I, I, and I love that you very, very proudly and boldly wear that unconventional label. I think that that's probably actually to your advantage. That's really, really cool. <laughs> sometimes. Some, yeah, sometimes. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely get that. Um, I, I'm so excited about, um, this is probably something you hear a lot or something that you've noticed within your own work. But um Going back to the Pixar theory, you know, you talk about world building, you talk about how this universe is connected and just very, um, I don't know, I guess I want to say like deeply interconnected. Um, How was that then with that in mind? Did that give you any special insight to the world building for killer joy at all?
1: I I think you hit it perfectly because I, I owe a great deal of my creativity and my like passion for art and for stories to Pixar, because Pixar—you know, it, it, once you know my age, it's pretty obvious. I, the first movie I saw in the theater was the first Toy Story. Oh, um, or sorry, actually, it was the second one. I saw the Lion King first, but Toy <laughs> Story was the <laughs> one I remember a little bit better. Um, yeah. I, I grew up on these movies and I grew up uh, watching them over and over again and really appreciating the originality behind the stories, not just the characters and what they go through, but the, the places that they live in, but the world and everything like that. And uh, that's, that's really what brought me to this understanding of if I'm going to make a story and you know, I'm going to sort of indulge this sort of author itch that I have, is there any way that I can even come close to that standard like would would Pixar look at my story and want to turn it into a movie the answer is no but (laughs) I think that they would at the very least is they would look at it and say that's a very that was bold (laughs) that's good enough for me
0: that's awesome that was bold I'm like taking notes here and I just I really enjoy that just knowing that I've done this bold thing and I'm proud of it Oh, that's awesome. So in, in your mind, and, and I want to draw upon your knowledge as a critic as well, what makes for good world building?
1: Wow. I, it, it's so hard to tell. I can tell you more about what makes for bad world building because I oh, spent so much time yeah. experiencing yeah, yeah, yeah. that kind of thing. And uh, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I go into a bookstore and I see a great book cover. Uh, maybe I see an author that I've read before and I, just, I love their work. And I open it up and I start reading the first few pages and I get lost. And when I was a kid, I used to think it was completely my fault. It probably mm. still is. But I used to think that I was doing something wrong. Like, why am I not getting sucked into these books the way that other people seem to be? And that all changed uh, last, last year, actually. Um, last January, I want to say. When my my girlfriend told me, "It's time for you to suck it up. You've watched the movies. You're reading the Harry po- the Harry Potter novels. <laughs> it's happening," and I was like, "Okay, sure. I've watched all the movies. I, I love these characters. I love the Harry Potter story. And I'll, sure, I'll read these. I always stayed away from it because I was like, I don't know if it's if it's for me. I missed it. I missed that train. You know. Mm-hmm. And that was when I learned that there is a difference between." great world building and just okay world building because when i got sucked into rowling's world i was like this defies everything that i thought i knew about what makes a story technically amazing Mm -hmm. and i just dove right into it so that's sort of you know it's such an intangible thing i wish i could look i think the more you try to look at like individual like nuts and bolts of a story and try to say that's what makes a good world building or that's what makes a good world building I, I think that you can still come away with a story that you want to have great world building and you want it to have interesting places that, you, that feel alive, but they may not just have that same that same uh, imagination that a book like Harry Potter will have. And that sounds like really depressing, but <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a, it's a really harsh thing. But I, I do think that uh, I did approach Killer Joy with that sort of mindset of, look, I'm not going to create Hogwarts, <laughs> it's not going to happen. You know, if it does, incidentally, sure, that that would be fantastic. But I don't want to kill myself over trying to to measure up to these authors who just have endless, you know, wells of imagination. For many other books besides Harry Potter, of course.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think it's just part of it's not sweating it so much and not, you know, looking at Killer Joy and being so focused on how do I make this world uh, I- irresistible? Mm. Um, but instead, how do I make it just absolutely what I want to get out of a story and that's how I built it and you know I had a lot of sessions where I would sit down and I would you know look apart from the characters and I would just rethink everything about this world I did it so many times where I'd be like okay I I decided on the fly one day that this is how the world operates and then I'd say no let's try something else Hmm. and I'd spend like an hour here an hour there and I'd say this is actually this is the history of this place and it's why I had to rewrite it so many times you know but you have to be willing to do that if you want to create a world that is just vetted and it's you know you've put it through your own standards so many times that you get sick of it <laughs> and it I honestly think that 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 is the process that worked for me I can't speak to how good the world building of killer joy is uh, people have told me that they really enjoyed it the publisher said is but the publisher said that the world building was uh the reason they signed me hmm. so I hope I hope they're being honest and I'm just telling <laughs> you what I want to hear um, and that, that's, that's about all I can really say, like substantially and with confidence that really makes a story come alive.
0: You know, you've talked a little bit about um, what makes a story lovable. And I can tell that you are a person who loves story and you get deeply invested in it. How about what makes for a good story or what makes for a bad story, if you want to kind of take mm. that tack on it?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, I always go back to my creative writing classes. Uh, You know, because I, you know, in school, I took plenty of courses and like the English classes, the honors English and all of that. And, you know, part of what was great about those classes, you would learn the the five point, you know, structure, I think it's whatever it's called, of uh, how a story is composed, right? Yep. (laughs)
0: You
1: you learn the basics of that and you learn uh, how all the greats create stories. And what I loved about my creative writing class that I took a few years ago was that I mean, you just, first of all, you take it a lot further, you know? You really look at what makes a story great, what creates conflict between characters. Uh, I think that's a big one. Uh, you learn simple things like when you, you, you should be able to break the rules sometimes, right? Like you, you want a story to be, you know, you, you want to understand how story works before you break the rules, I think a lot of writers and authors and teachers say. Uh, and I think that's mm-hmm. very important. I I don't think we should forget that. We kind of hear it and we say, well, I know everything about story. I I would challenge that. Uh, one of the things that I did while I was writing Killer Joy was I went back to the notes that I kept from those classes, and I you know I would rewrite short stories that were my assignments mm-hmm. um, back in the day, and I would like really examine: Do I know this? Do I know, you know, how stories put together and the many ways that you can put story together. And what you'll find is that sometimes you do break the rules in ways that don't work. Uh, One of the things that I did wrong was (laughs) I was going off of the, uh, I was going off of a three act structure of a movie, Mm. maybe because I watched so many that my book was being laid out that way. And it was really frustrating because like, no, 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 this is a novel. A novel needs to have background and development and rising action. That's so important. You have to get that right. You can fudge with it a little bit, but a great story, it's, it's really hard to make a great story come out of sloppy storytelling, if that makes any sense. Yes. Yeah, and I, I think for bad stories, uh, I, I think the, the most common thing I get from stories that I think, maybe not bad, I don't wanna say stories are bad, everyone's gonna get something out of a story. Mm-hmm. They're gonna get something out of a novel that I hate. But I guess the difference between a story that is maybe just so-so and one that I think is good is just the importance and the relevance you know i could have made killer joy for example this story that's like it's just they're you know they they have powers and they go around and it's good versus evil Well, we've got that story before I, I don't really want to write a story that just goes down to that so let's let's dig a little deeper here you know let's what's the message of this book what what is it trying to say what is you know what is something that uh you know can be said about killer joy in conversation for me that was making the main character uh, her name is Exa. You see her on the cover. Making Exa this character who is relevant for, I would say, 21st century millennials. She's a character who will kind of surprise you the, the things that she does, the norms that she doesn't ascribe to. Uh, the gender dynamics for Killer Joy are almost non existent to what you would find in today's culture because I've seen a lot of great. Th- stories come out about, you know, gender dynamics and, you know, for mentioned it earlier but a song of Ice and Fire,
0: mm-hmm. Lord of the
1: Rings. You know, a lot of those are about uh, you know, just really, you know, oppressive patriarchies. Well I wanted to create a story as like, okay, well let's let's say there is no patriarchy. Anyone can do anything based only on merits, birth, but gender is not really a factor. So that was something that I introduced in a killer joy as an effort to say, hey, stories like this can exist too. They can exist alongside you know, other stories that maybe are are just more realistic and, you know, they they grapple with tougher issues. But uh, that that was definitely one thing that I took into account. And uh, there's also this kind of black, there's no black and white to this story. It's very morally gray. And uh, those are just a few of the things that uh, I, I put together in a book that hopefully, people will read it and they'll get more out of it than entertainment. You know, they'll get a message, something that they may not have heard before.
0: And um, did you kind of start off with the intention of putting that message in there, or did it kind of evolve out of it once you started writing?
1: I did have a baseline of, like, I do want to create a story that, uh, you know, the starting place was make something different. And I didn't want to put myself into a box and say, well, okay, what's different? Well, it's this, this, or this. I I sort of was like, well, let's start with uh, who the characters are and going back to what makes a good story. And I went through the somebody wanted, but so technique which uh, for some of you listeners, might not know what that is. It's very simple, you know, you have your character, somebody, uh, what do they want? So you have a character who wants something, but something gets in their way, so they do this. So that's kind of how I build my characters. And I think the relevance and the messages that can be a little bit more organic. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with with Killer Joy uh, beyond like the world building of like the philosophical stuff of like mm-hmm. how the world would operate and why. Uh, I kind of let it just happen organically, and it was really like when I was writing the main character. She wasn't the main character necessarily at first. She didn't show up until I think chapter four, <laughs> and I had to rewrite. And no, she's in chapter two, and she's the main character. So, you know, it, all of that stuff, it's sort of just that I think that the trick is to just sort of pay attention to when, you know, your your gut, your writer's gut is telling you to, to make a change, an uncomfortable change sometimes, uh, because you may find an opportunity to add something to your book that makes sense, that flows out of it naturally, that can, you know, that can just make your story richer.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes to that. Absolutely. Um, How did you overcome that discomfort? I know a lot of people, when they're writing and they feel that twinge in their gut, like, man, I really should change this. What made you go over the edge and actually change it?
1: A lot of different things work for a lot of different people. Um, Part of my process, I I think some writers... They don't like to show anybody their work Mm. until they're like pretty far into it, right? Mm -hmm. And I totally understand that. I get it completely. I didn't show or read anybody Killer Joy, like the more like concrete draft until I think it was about six chapters in. Um, But what did make me want to make it better was by reading it aloud to people Mm. and sort of gauging their reactions to it and putting myself out there. There's a very big difference between you evaluating your work and other people evaluating your work.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And yeah, and some people, you know, they, they, that discomfort that they feel of like, oh, if I rewrite this, you know, I, what am I going to save in the beta readers I have? So that's part of it too. You have to have a little bit of patience and, and give it some time before you start throwing it to people because you do want that freedom and flexibility to go back. Um, I think that it really is for me. Uh, I would oh one thing that I did was that was probably a little weird, is I would stop writing if I was feeling like uh, if any time that I was writing and I did feel that discomfort of like I need to change this because it's not working. It's uh, the story just isn't coming together the way that it I pictured it in my head. Right? I would stop writing, go outside, and just rethink everything and write scenes in my head, play mm-hmm. them out like you know, adapt them you know for the, for the- Mind screen or whatever you would yeah, call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that helps so much because it gives you that confidence again of like I'm in control of the story. I call the shots. If I want to go back and change the script, I'm gonna do it. Uh, so it can be a little bit of confidence building for yourself.
0: And what a great way to look at that. I know that that is something that a lot of writers, especially unpublished writers, struggle with is that confidence. Am I doing this right? But trusting your gut, knowing when to go back and make those changes is a really mature thing to do and I think results in a better story. Even looking at when you went from sort of that three-act movie structure to um, putting it in a different... Did you use the kind of five-act or seven for the 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 novel? Five? Yeah,
1: yeah. For me, that is the one that for a debut definitely should do. I mean, it you know you just got to know yourself a little bit. That that's for the masters to sort of really play with that structure and do something different. It's tough.
0: It absolutely is. Absolutely. I'm very curious. Uh, I love movies. A lot of writers love movies. A lot of us are inspired by them. I feel like as a critic, you maybe watch or absorb the stories in movies and TV shows a little bit differently than the normal person. Can you tell us a little bit about when you go into a TV show or a movie to critique it? What are you looking for and what is that experience like?
1: (laughs) It's a big question. (laughs) It's big. Uh, Well, part of it is not just the individual movie, but the fact that I see so many. Um, when you watch a lot of movies, that means you're watching a lot of bad movies. It means you're watching a lot of amazing movies that you never would have otherwise seen. It's a big, big range. <laughs> but that does impact the, the times when I go in and maybe I see a movie that's like right there in the middle. And for me personally, what has brought me, you know, sort of satisfaction in this arena is that when I see a movie that's like right there in the middle, I do find myself really giving it a break and saying to myself, well, it's not this terrible movie over here, and sure, it's not this amazing movie over here, but what can I get out of this? And I use these movies as sort of teaching moments for myself, of like, what did the director have in mind? What prevented them from maybe making this movie even better? Or, you know, is this movie a shameless cash grab? And all of those other questions that I have. Sometimes you can go into that movie and sit back, Let's soak it all in. And sometimes I don't want to think critically or evaluate a movie because sometimes I just want to watch what happens and let it, you know, let it all happen and not overthink it. But on a deeper level, especially for movies that I really love, I really like to imagine what went into the film being made. Uh, I'd like to go into uh, why did they put that there? Why? Why is, is that a symbol? Is that supposed to be saying something? Is that a little nod from the director? I mean, you're asking the person that wrote a book about how Pixar theory, you know, <laughs> Pixar movies are connected. Uh, that that honestly was a lot of it. I would watch these movies religiously, like more than religiously, because it was more than once a week. And I would just go movie by movie and see, oh, this is how this can connect to here. And, you know, this is what this movie is saying. And, you know, even, even something is silly and, you know, kind of for fun as the Pixar theory. The whole overarching narrative they added to that was it's something that is trying to make the movies better. It's It's like Pixar telling an even bigger story. It's something that's about more than these individual things. So I try to find that in every movie that I see. I try to find author's intent. I try to find human experiences and make sense out of them and to understand people. It's an exercise in empathy. It's what separates, I think, many film critics who can be very cynical, who can be very like, I just I'm here to say that this is technically better than this. And then other critics, you know, and writers and novelists and and anybody that you find who look at things and and try to connect. You know, that's that's the big difference. I wish I could be a film connector instead of a film critic. I like that. The terminology doesn't exist yet. We're working on it.
0: So uh, you have experience podcasting, and you actually have a podcast about being a film critic, about reviewing shows, movies. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. It's it's why I wanted so badly to come on here, because I <laughs> love talking to people who love podcasts, because, you know, I, so the small thing about me is I have tinnitus. So I'm always trying to listen to something. I can't really experience silence, unfortunately, yeah. uh, which sounds worse than it really is, I guess. But I love podcasts because I can always have, you know, another human being or music or whatever in my ears that is, you know, adding something to my day. And so I listened to the right now many times while I was uh, writing and while I was actually, in, I listened to right now a lot while I was looking for agents. So oh, yeah. thank uh, you. Gosh. Very, yeah. It, it was very relaxing. You know, it was very easy to, you know, just kind of unwind and sit and, you know, coffee breaks are really, really helpful for that part of the process, believe it or not. Um, that said, um, my podcast is called Cinemaholics, and it's we kind of created it actually to not really just be just another film critic movie review show. We actually set it out to be like, uh, I, I don't know how familiar you are with like this whole there's this, this new energy right now, and like the the movie going fan culture world where you know the fans and the critics kind of hate each other, right? That's mm. kind of going on. You may have noticed like hit pieces on Rotten Tomatoes and uh, you know, fans think that critics take movies too seriously. Critics think that fans will, you know, like anything that has a logo strapped to it. <laughs> I created a show with a, a film critic friend of mine and just an average movie goer. And we created a show where it's like, let's bridge the gap. Mm. We're not film critics here. We're not fanboys here. We're just, we're cinemaholics. We love, we love movies and we love talking about them. And we don't want to get bogged down in, you know, hype and, and things that you, you'll probably find more often than not. And we didn't want to get too snobby, you know, <laughs> and we wanted to take, okay, let's talk about this art film over here, but also let's talk about this really fun superhero movie over here and, uh, or this dumb comedy in between. And uh, that, that's kind of our shtick. And uh, it's, it's a fun show. We got this covered, and they're, they're just very gracious in giving us a platform. And uh, I love it. We've been doing it for six months now, and uh, we've been seeing just tremendous growth and support from people who are connecting with that kind of sentimentality of, like, let's just throw all the labels at the door, and uh, let's just bond over the things that we ha- have in common, uh, not the things that kind of you know split us up.
0: Oh, I love that. And I love that you're having fun doing it. I think podcasting has probably been one of the most fun things I've ever spontaneously decided to do, so <laughs> I'm glad you're enjoying it.
1: It's a blast, yeah, oh,
0: that's awesome. well, John, let's see what am I forgetting anything? I was gonna ask you um what your favorite movie was., hmm. but I know that's like asking a book like like me, like I don't actually have a favorite book. I have like nine hundred favorite books, but if you could pick right. one
1: well i always I always practice it' it's like Subject to change, mm. and you know, it's I'm pulling from a list of movies that I love. But uh, the number one movie, and it's going to sound a little silly, and I've gotten hate for it in the past. I've gotten you know, okay, sure, that's great, John. In the past, <laughs> but uh, The Mask of Zorro is probably my favorite movie. I adore that film. I love everything about it. I love the adventure, the action, the the romance, the the hero's journey, the special effects, the costumes. I love everything about that movie. I could eat it up and watch it a million more times. Uh, and uh, if you know anything about me and the kind of movies and books and things I like, *Mask of Zorro* does make perfect sense.
0: That is awesome. Is it disappointing to so know I've never seen it?
1: It's it's okay. I understand. It's it's. Uh, it's, it's a movie that kind of came and went, right? You know, it did, you know, yeah. The James Bond, you know, I, it did it was very successful and I, I highly recommend it, of course. It's it's a great throwback because they took a movie, they made a modern movie, but there's so many classical touches in there, you know, matte paintings for landscapes and it's such a big movie, you know, it feels like it should have been shot on 70 millimeter. And uh, there's just so much faith and love put into taking the Zorro stories, the the great movies that they made over the 20th century and finishing the 20th century strong with just a movie that puts all of the great uh, Zorro material together into one big thing and even if you don't love Zorro or know of him or you know he's he's inspired many other characters you may love so I, I highly recommend the movie to anybody.
0: Awesome. I have never seen it. I am now adding it to my list because I love movies and there is, I suppose there's never a shortage of movies to see, but I like knowing that (laughs) when they come highly recommended, I like to like bump them up to the top of my list. So that is absolutely awesome. Well, John, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. I've had just so much fun talking to you. Um, If people are interested in buying Killer Joy, getting a, a copy of the Pixar theory, finding you online, where can they go? What can they do?
1: Well, uh, if they want to find me online uh, they, and just see where all my books are and everything like that, they can go to my website, johnnegroni.com. It's a little tougher to spell, uh, <laughs> Negroni like a cocktail, but uh, you can also find Killer Joy on Amazon. It's uh, Killer Joy, not Kill Joy. And it's on Amazon Prime right now. You can get the Kindle version, or you can get it shipped paperback, and I believe it's uh, free shipping right now. So, uh, if you're an Amazon Prime member, so you can get that that way. And the Pixar Theory is available on SlimBooks.com, or you can just go to my website and check it out, and you can get it right through there.
0: Awesome, JohnNegroni.com. I will make sure that I have a link to that in the show notes for today's episode. Gosh, otherwise, John, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for your insights and for sharing your love of story with us today.
1: It was so much fun. Thank you so much for letting me come on. I had a great time as well.